shot yeah. let's go with that it's very awkward beginning this podcast i don't like it in future we'll just begin halfway through yeah what we're already talking about yeah I yeah we'll begin in media res yes in media res yeah oh. and everyone will know and it'll be fine okay brilliant excellent but today we're starting at the start yes the awkward horrible start which means i'm going to introduce myself yeah do that as lauren hello lauren hi hi i'm alicia Hello, Alicia. Hi, nice <laughs> to meet you. And this is the podcast where we talk about deviant women. Deviant women from history and mostly history, actually. Yeah, I know. The other things we haven't really touched on at all. We've done a little bit of literature. A little bit, yeah. I um, want to get to some mythology eventually. Yeah, we will eventually get to We have mythology. done contemporaneity. We have. Good job. You've said that word correctly now. I, yep. think, I think we've just got that word now. Yeah. Um... Yeah, but mainly history. But that's because I think that's where we find the most interesting people to talk about. That's right. Um, And we have one of those very interesting people today. We do. We have a historical woman today, a real-life historical woman. She's pretty great, actually. We're doing the thing again where we're pretending you don't know, (laughs) Yeah. even though it's written on the thing. So, Lauren, tell us, introduce us to this episode's Deviant Woman. This episode's Deviant Woman is a most incredibly fascinating woman named Josephine Baker. And I'm so excited to talk about her because I actually don't know how I'm going to get through everything that I want to talk about her in our episode today, but I'm going to try my hardest because she's just so fucking fascinating. All right. We'll try and cram in as much as we possibly can. Do we need to talk about anything else before we get started? No, I think we're good. I think we can just dive straight on in. I'm just going to have a little sip of my drink. Oh yeah, because today we are drinking Baileys. Baileys Baileys on ice. Mm, Crema Baileys. Mm, Very creamy, very delicious. I hope that Bailey sponsor us <laughs> in the future. Just send Bailey's. us a bunch mm, Bailey's. of Baileys. Yep. Great. We should be drinking some Jazz Age cocktails, actually. Did they have Baileys in the Jazz Age? I have no idea. Neither do I. When was ja- I wonder no when idea. it was invented. I imagine they probably drank a lot of gin. Yeah, in the Jazz gin, Age. Definitely. Because the Jazz Age is where we're at when we're talking about yeah. Josephine Baker. Um, well, this is where we're going to begin. This is where we're going to begin. In the Jazz Age. in Mostly in the 1920s. So we actually begin in 1906 in the outskirts of St. Louis in the US, but we're not going to stay there for very long. No, we're not going to stay there for very long. So Josephine Baker was American-born, She's an American-born singer. But most people, if they know her, they probably associate her with Europe. That's right, right, because she had most of her success. Well, Well, really, okay, let's just say all of her success took place... In Europe, mostly in Paris. Mm-hmm. So she is going to head over to Paris at one point. And she spends some time in, in the US a little bit later on in her life. But it's very complicated. And, uh, mm. oh, oh, man. Yeah. Complications Let's just, We do begin in the US. Yeah. So just as a really basic overview, Josephine Baker is, a, she was a super, super megastar in the jazz age in Europe. She was very famous for a couple of her dances. She appeared in some films and she was just basically one of the first mega divas. And I say the word diva in not a negative way, in like a totally empowering. This mm. is a woman who fucking knows what she wants to do in the world and is completely, completely, utterly unafraid of doing what she wants and trying to live the life mm. that she dreams of. But to get started, we do have to go to her hometown in St. Louis in the US in uh, 1906, which is when she was born. She's born in a kind of poor family. Her mother was a laundress in downtown St. Louis. Her father, okay, so one thing about Josephine Baker is that she wrote several different biographies for herself. Did she really? Yes, and many of them contradict one another, (laughs) and many of her biographies contradict the things that other people in her life say about her. So there's quite a lot of versions of events that are like 
Josephine's versions of events versus somebody else's versions of events. Versus another Josephine's version yeah, of events. Yeah, exactly. That and so the first part where this becomes contentious is with the identity of her father. Right. So at some points, Josephine claims he may have been um, a black lawyer. He may have been a Jewish tailor. He may have been a Creole from New Orleans. He may have been a Spanish dancer. Most likely, though, he was Eddie Carson, a vaudeville drummer. Oh, okay. For some reason, I like Spanish dance. Yeah. I was hoping for that Um, one. But either way, it's kind of a little bit problematic because she is a black woman in early 20th century America in St. Louis. Not an awesome time or place to be a black woman or to be born into, I guess, a black family. And she's actually really light skinned. And... That was a problem for her as well. Because so this it, is actually probably so that suggests that her parentage to her father could be any of those. Exactly, things. exactly. So, and this is where some people think that she may have had a white father, and that's actually an element of shame mm-hmm. in her community. So she did experience racism from a couple of different complicated, yeah, from all like, the directions, sides. Yeah. yeah, because. She was a light-skinned black woman, so she didn't fully belong in her own community because she did get a lot of... Well, she claims that she did receive a lot of racism from black people as well as from, obviously, from white people because she's not white enough to be white and she's not black enough to be black. And, of course, that does also make the identity of her father harder to pinpoint. But, nevertheless, she grew up, and this is in during segregation, of course, as well, which is not awesome. Mm. Um, and the, the whole segregation thing played into her being light-skinned as well, because when she would have to go to all of the coloured areas, that's where she would get a lot of scorn from other where does black she people. Sit? Where does yeah. she fit? The thing is, it doesn't matter how light-skinned you are, if you're black, you're black in segregated America, according to white people. That's just the way that it is. <laughs> you can't change that. Racial tensions were really high when, during her childhood. So in 1917, there were these riots, like, yeah, massive kind of riots that erupted. So basically in St. Louis, black workers were imported to fill industrial jobs that were left unfilled due to like World War One, And there were a lot of demonstrations and protests against this black migration because white people thought that their jobs were being taken away from them and they didn't want black people moving into their neighborhoods. They took the germs. Yeah. They took the germs. Yeah. And so there was mobs and some of these mobs, it's that whole case, and it's just so frustrating, but it's that whole thing where a white mob will pick on a black person and, of course, as soon as that black person retaliates, it's the, oh, they did this, they, you know. And so there were attacks that grew worse, like white men beat and clubbed black men to death. They set houses on fire. And then other people would didn't help the black people that were fleeing from their burning homes. It was pretty bad. Apparently 40 people died and 600 were homeless by the end of these riots that took place. So it's a pretty shitty time in her this is her early childhood that she's she's, growing up into and so she's just living with her mother so her father's not on the scene anymore. no not her biological father but her her mum did remarry so she had a stepfather and she had a couple of siblings who came along after her so and i think she also lived with her grandmother and her aunt as well but when she was seven she left her family home and went to live with um, a white family as like live-in help So cleaning, carrying coal, chopping wood, all of those kinds of jobs. And according to Josephine, she was really mistreated in this first family. And how old was she? Seven. Seven. Yeah, seven years old. Yowzers. Yep. Yep. That's right. And Josephine claims that she was made to like sleep in a box in the basement with the dog and was scolded with boiling water. In another story, she said that she was made to kill a chicken that she'd befriended. Oh, Oh, and so this is like the trauma of these experiences are apparently she what... She befriended the chicken. Yeah, and then they made her kill it. Oh. And also apparently, yes, yeah, scolded her hands in boiling water, which is pretty fucking awful. And then at nine, she learned to live with another family who were, were much nicer to her and actually first took her to the theatre. Yeah. I'm going to assume this is rather formative. Yeah, just a little bit. So she'd spent a lot of time at the Booker T. Washington Theatre, which is an all-black theatre. It was actually built and run by African-Americans. And so she'd go along. She used to skip school all the time, as you do, as to, you do hang to out at the theatre. 
And she would apparently watch the performers really, really closely. So she learned all their dances, but she also paid really close attention to things like which costumes the audiences really liked and what kind of facial expressions the, got the biggest reactions out of audiences. Excellent. So she's already just like kind of tapping into all of that, filing it away. Definitely. Future reference. Yeah. And she'd like go home and perform for her family and all that kind of stuff. So she's... What a precocious young thing. Yeah. Skipping school, but in her case, it worked out pretty well because she's learned learning a lot while she was while she's doing that there's a story that apparently when she was nine she was watching this group called the dixie steppers and she said that she was going to demand a job from the director because she <laughs> loved them so much so she told him that she was 15 and he hired her again this is one of josephine's okay. stories so, so whether or not we don't yeah. know another version of events is that one of the dixie steppers saw josephine and she helped open some doors for her. But what's actually likely to have happened is Clara Smith, who was one of the stars of the Dixie Steppers, um, she was hired as her dresser. And so it's Clara who introduced her to a lot of the elements of the theatre, taught her costuming, helped her with actually just reading and writing, but also importantly, taught her to behave like a true diva. And um, according to... Uh, one of Josephine's adopted children, her last adopted child, Jean-Claude Baker. They were lady lovers. Ooh. But who knows? <laughs> so who knows how true that story is? So the thing is, her childhood is just filled with... Her whole life is filled with amazing scandal, but it starts when she's very young. So there's this story that maybe she was lovers with Clara Smith, who opened these doors Wait, and how the old is she now? This is when she's very, like, early teens. Yikes. But when she was 13 years old, she married married what? a man named Willie Wells. At 13? At 13 years old. Willie? Willie. She married Willie. And oh, again, Willie. we have a couple of versions of events. According to one source, because they, they divorced very soon. Wow. Wow. You know, I guess these things happen when you're 13. But one story says that Josephine was pregnant until Willie beat her <gasps> and she lost the child. Other stories say that she faked the pregnancy and when she got her period, they got into a fight and Willie left. So who's Willie? Uh, I don't Where know. Her husband. I'm not sure. It's just some random, it's just a random husband yeah. that appears on the scene very quickly and then disappears off the scene. I feel like it might have very... something to do with her family. Mm. Parents introducing her to <laughs> Willie, maybe. <laughs> I can't remember exactly. <laughs> I've read a lot about her life. That's I can't remember. That's fine. That's all right. Either way, she ended up performing with the Dixie Steppers, and this was her first entrance into the theatre world. And she began as a topless Cupid. And again, again she, at thirteen, she's yeah, yeah, early teens here, topless Cupid. But she already again, remember how she was paying such close attention to audience responses and everything. She already had a knack. Comedy, mm-hmm. but on her very first night, she actually got herself tangled in some wires, and then she was really afraid of being fired. But this really revealed that natural talent she had for comedy, and in fact, the manager was like, "No, that was great. Do that again. Do it every night." And so then she was doing it every night, and she became known for her not just her dancing, but also for her comedy prowess yeah. as well. Because see, this so this is the thing. Because for me, I mean, Josephine Baker is someone I know very little about i know josephine baker to sort of the extent of the banana skirt jazz age josephine Mm. baker that i think is probably the most sort of iconic image that exists of her and and in fact it's one of the most iconic images of that yeah period of history yeah she is and if anyone hasn't seen again go and do a google image search of josephine baker's banana skirt and you can find youtube videos of her dancing yeah there's plenty of videos that exist of her actually in performance yeah and in those you can see that that comedian coming through so because she has those crazy faces that she pulls yeah like huge huge eyes and like she's going cross-eyed and pulling stupid faces and whatever she plays up on that Completely, completely. So this is where she learns that. This is where she learns the yep, art. Yeah, it's of all doing beginning that. here. Yeah, and of course she wanted to go bigger and better. And when the Dixie Steppers were touring again, okay, now we have another. Maybe this is true. Maybe this isn't true. But I think this is actually something I really, really love about Josephine Baker is the fact that she 
don't know, I get this sense that she's just like, fuck it, I'm going to tell this story. This is my life. If I say this yeah. is my life, this is my fucking gonna, life. It's my own myth. I yeah. may as well make it the way I want to exactly. make it. Exactly. She's creating her own myth. So a part of her creation of her own myth, whether this actually happened or not, I, I don't even know if I care. This is great. <laughs> but so apparently she says that she got fired from the Dixie Steppers, but she was following them around on tour and that she would like jump inside the crates as they were touring on the trains and stuff like that. So she one day she crept into an unlocked shipping crate packed with all of their dresses and costumes and stuff. Um, But then she was picked up as the crate was moved (sighs) and had to like press her nose up against the like sides in between the slats or whatever to breathe. And the night watchman had to come to her rescue. (sighs) And then she was rehired. But her manager... And then she was rehired. Yeah. Her manager claims that this never happened, but... You know, I just, I just it's like, story. I just like that she makes these yeah. stories of herself. Like Why this, let the truth get in the way of a good story? Exactly. And this is, I think that's really one of the most important things to remember about Josephine Baker is that she is her own best story. <laughs> like she's fucking incredible. Okay. So yeah, so she's touring, she's wanting to get bigger, but she wanted to go and work on Broadway, particularly in this show called Shuffle Along, which was, again, an all-black musical. But she was rejected, this time for being too dark. So mm. while her lightness had been a problem in the South, in the it, North. it was the opposite problem when she was auditioning. And she's actually quoted as saying, to the whites, I looked like chocolate. To the blacks, I looked like a pinky. There was no place I belonged. Mm. And this kind of difficulty follows her around a lot in America. But luckily, not so much when she leaves, and she's going to leave very soon. But she did end up auditioning again a few years later for Shuffle Along, and she did get a part in the show's road company. And part of the reason why she got that, apparently, is because of her new husband, Billy Baker. What? Where did he come from? Yeah, so she married a guy called Billy Baker, who's father oh, that's so, where she gets the so name this is where she, so oh so what was her maiden name what was she before oh, she was yes so her maiden before name she was josephine baker was mcdonald oh okay so she was josephine mcdonald she was actually born Frida josephine mcdonald oh interesting okay. yeah so she marries and she becomes this is when she takes on the that's name right josephine baker yes that's right but apparently the other chorus girls hated her and called her monkey and they threw costumes out of the dressing room so she had to get changed in the bathroom This is a really interesting and highly problematic idea that's going to come back a bit later, I think, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And so there's a lot of really important formative stuff that's occurring during these experiences. And all of it will come up again as we're talking later. So firstly, okay, just racial discrimination. That was one of the key elements of her work later on in her life. And, yeah, the the type of performance that she was learning and the way that race defined the type of performance that she did. Is that what you meant? Yes. Yeah. That's definitely what I meant. Yeah. Mm. Because this is where she's not going to stick around the U.S. too long because I think it became clear to Josephine that the U.S. wasn't really going to offer her the opportunities that she really wanted. Mm. There were limits for what she could do there. Absolutely. So many. And this contrast is going to come up again later and so, she, oh. so where so where does how much long does she stay in the u.s for not very long in 1925 she was recruited by a woman named caroline dudley reagan who asked josephine to star in an all-black musical review called la revue negre in patty what a really creative name i know <laughs> so she's a black review the black review yeah. exactly okay so paris 1920s jazz age oh, so she goes to paris first yeah because i thought she went to berlin is that not now well yeah she does go to berlin very early in her career but she was first of all taken to paris yeah i've read accounts that said that she went to berlin first as well but apparently she was a first first recruited for la revue negro which was in paris and then she mm. went with la revue negro to berlin okay all right so we're in paris yeah 1920s this is similar to where we were when we were talking about Leonora Carrington. Exactly. Yeah, very, very similar. And um, she became famous with that same kind of crowd, but we're not quite there yet. But yes, definitely. And in Paris at this time, there really is a growing interest in American 
music. So jazz is really picking up. There was also this call for the exotic. And that's part of what audiences were looking for when they went to La Revue Negra. And this is a kind of an interesting, it's an interesting style of performance, let's just say. It's very problematic to watch now because if you do go and look at some of the YouTube videos of the early um, performances that Josephine Baker was in in Paris in the 1920s, there's a dance that she became incredibly famous for called uh, La Danse Sauvage, the Savage Dance. And this is where her famous banana skirt comes into things. Okay, I do want to say she is incredible. Watching her dance in this banana skirt is fucking insane. She is just like gyrating and pulsing with this amazing raw sexual energy and she's also really funny and so talented and fast and it's an incredible performance to watch but there's also this white man on stage in his explorer's cap and then there's all of the air quote black savages in their grass skirts so it's probably not the type of show that you could get away with putting on today. <laughs> so I mean, but it's really tapping into that exotic and it's tapping into that white male gaze of the time. Definitely. Especially. So the thing is, is that, I mean, and we were talking about this before, Josephine Baker did her own sort of choreography, mm. didn't she? Yeah. So at this stage, I mean, she's tapping into something she knows is going to work for her at the same time. That's right. Isn't yes, she? absolutely. So it's not like it's necessarily this is an image that's being forced on her from outside she knows the game she's playing that's right she, and yep. she is tapping into this sort of primitive again in air quotes primitive savage exoticism that is appealing to the audience of the time yeah i think that really she's kind of quite brilliantly manipulating this white gaze because it is she has been brought here to paris to be in la revue negre like this was her ticket into the scene but she is totally capitalizing on it in order to establish herself mm, and, and make she, it work for her yeah and so she reclaims this image i think really quite brilliantly and uses it to advance her career and she does it really well like the banana skirt has become super iconic it's not i don't think anymore an image of black primitive savage other but instead it has become a symbol of black feminine power mm. like beyonce wore the banana skirt i think in like 2004 or something and huge designers i can't oh who was it i want to say prada but that might be wrong um have used the banana skirt as well in recent campaigns so that has become an image of itself and in this dance she would you know, she's wearing her banana skirt and she's gyrating and she's swinging her arms, crossing her eyes, poking out her backsides. Which Backsides? Her backside. <laughs> so she's playing into what they want, but then she is proving herself as being a brilliant performer at the same time. And she is. She's a brilliant dancer. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like, really do go and watch the videos of her because it's incredible. <laughs> and you know what? It fucking worked because she became a superstar and so there is an element of exoticism and like fetishizing of her performance because she would perform in just the banana skirt with a string of pearls wrist cuffs etc and even she finds this to be really empowering i've got a quote from her that says driven by dark forces i didn't recognize i improvised crazed by the music the overheated theater filled to the bursting point. Each time I leaped, I seemed to touch the sky. Each time I regained earth, it seemed to be mine alone. That's brilliant. So <laughs> that's such an interesting thing is, as well, is that this period of history, you know, that interwar period is quite free yeah. and liberated. Yeah. And it is a time where after so much deprivation and horror, it is this kind of essence now of in Europe, do what you want. Yeah. Make, live especially your life. Europe. Go, like, exactly. And this is the thing. She couldn't Paris. have done this back in the States. No. You know, no. like this worked in Paris because it was Paris. Yeah. And, and because, because it was so soon after the First World War yeah, as yeah. well. And everyone's partying. It is the jazz age. Yeah. So you can be sexy and you can own your sexuality in Paris and not be ashamed. And so many like videos that do exist at that time and photos, and they do sort of show you know just this open wanton sexuality yeah and there was one story i think this is not until she goes to berlin though and this is sort of 
coming towards the Second World War, mm. where it's Max Reinhardt, I think. Do you know this story? Uh, tell it, Kind maybe. of becomes fascinated with her and falls in love with her. And there's this yeah. story of her sort of having this orgy with all these other women, basically sort of for his pleasure his and his gaze. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, but this is the sort of thing that was happening at the time. It was just like And she's getting off on it as well. Yeah, Like, absolutely. this is the thing, like, yeah. it's... It's her pleasure as much as it is anybody else's. But it's a total free-for-all. Yeah, and she had a lot of lovers and she had even more admirers. Apparently she had over a thousand marriage proposals. Wow! Which is pretty insane. One of her admirers rented her this huge apartment in Paris, which she filled with a menagerie of exotic animals like snakes and monkeys and birds, and she called it her marble palace. So, and she's also was getting showered with gifts from designers who would send her all these clothes and she's partying hard in Paris and completely unashamedly and they love her. They just loved her. Mm. So, yeah. The party's not going to last forever though, is it, Lauren? Well, no, but it's got to last for a little while. Let's stay there for a little while. Because what I did want to come back to is coming back to the banana skirt and the way that she has reclaimed and used that as an empowering image. And this is something, again, she could only do in Paris or in Europe, really, is that there's dolls in banana skirts that yeah, are beginning to sell right. all over Europe. Beauty magazines advise women to rub walnut oil on their skin to darken it. And she had her own skin lotion called Baker Skin, which was a skin darkening lotion and a hair product called Baker Fix, which was a hair pomade. Like, can you fucking imagine? That's crazy. Yeah. White Parisian women are going out and buying products to darken themselves to look like Josephine Baker. I think that's pretty fucking incredible in the 1920s and would not have happened in the United States. (laughs) So, yeah, she's having a great time. She is partying a lot. She How old is she now? She's st- still only like in her, in her early, 20s. early 20s, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. she's really young. This is in the mid-20s. So she was born in 1906. So she is in yeah. late teens, early 20s. Wow. Um, she was a regular at this club called La Rat Mort, which was owned by the Corsican Mafia. And she used to dance there like all the time. <laughs> to, so cool. uh, <laughs> to adoring crowds. Oh, and actually there was another story. So she ended up with this Italian manager named Pepito Albertino and he was a count. Um, they There's always op- a count. There's yeah. always a count. And they opened a club together named Shea Josephine. Why are there any counts now? I just want to, just as a side point, why are there no counts now? Uh, I think it's because we no longer have a f- feudalism. All right. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> but on that, okay, an even better part of the story about there being a count is that once in 1928, get this, a fucking duel was fought in her honour oh! between Pepito and a, Hungar- and a Hungarian cavalry officer. What? So, <laughs> according to an account by Time, okay, quote, the ogling and attentions of Hungarian cavalry captain Andrew, oh, oh I'm not going to be able to say this name, <laughs> Sklizavoydi. Yeah, that became, was perfect Hungarian. Yeah, yeah. Became too fervently gallant to be stomached by Labeka's manager, Count Pepito di Albertini. Okay, that's the end of the quote. They yeah. met in a cemetery... And Baker watched them perched atop a tombstone as they engaged in a sword fight. (laughs) A a sword fight in a cemetery over her honour. Eventually, the Count took a blow to the shoulder and Baker intervened and broke up the fight. Yeah, yeah, good work. So she's having a pretty good time. (laughs) That's amazing. Anyway, so the show went to Berlin. And she Okay, was, so we do get to Berlin. Yeah, in 1926, the show went to Berlin and it sold out just like it did in Paris. But there's also a little bit more scandal here because, of course, we're coming into... We're not quite there yet, mm. but... It's still like Weimar Republic, ex- Germany. Yeah, that's right, so exactly. It's still, yep. it's, it still has that same sense of, you know, like, free-for-all. There is, you know, like there kind is of that. but there's also the Nazi party is starting, starting to, to get traction. Yeah. The Nazis circulated a petition to have her show banned in Vienna, and they called her the Black Devil. And leaflets denounced both her blackness and the fact that she danced naked. So she was both loved and scorned in Berlin. Nazis are such party poopers. <laughs> yeah, they did definitely. I'm oh, sorry, that was like the most reductionist statement <laughs> of all time. I don't know if I could like have underplayed that. 
<laughs> anymore effectively. That sums up the whole <laughs> war. Yeah. The we, Nazis yeah. were such party poopers. <laughs> fucking were. Oh, dude. Yes. Yeah, right. I'm yeah. sorry. I we'll re- take that yeah. as a comment. Yeah, we will take that. As a, <laughs> we'll definitely take that as a, as a comment. Yeah. So, yeah, she's having enormous success in Europe. She bought a chateau in a Parisian suburb where she kept her menagerie of animals, which now includes her pet cheetah, Chiquita. Um, if I had a cheetah, I'd call it Chiquita too. I know, I, me too. I think That's I'm, great. I think I'm going to get a dog and named it, name it Chiquita. In, <laughs> and dress it up like a cheetah. In Josephine Baker's Honor. Cheetah's Honor. Yeah, I like um, it. She also had a pig named Albert. I don't know if that's what I'd call it, but it's still, you know, she had mm. lots of exotic birds and, and all that kind of stuff. So actually, in, yeah. just as a foreshadowing, this is interesting that she's collecting things, oh, yeah. living things oh, at yeah. this stage. Anyway, we'll come back to that. Well, we'll come back to that. Mm. She does have a tendency to collect living things. <laughs> yeah. We'll come back, yeah. keep a menagerie. So she also started appearing in films in the late 20s. She was in, her first film was called La Sirene des Tropiques. So again, these are recalling those what African. Is, what, is, what does that mean? The uh, the can... siren of the tropics. Oh, excellent! Translation. I want to say yes. Yep. Good job. <laughs> and she was also in a very famous film called Zuzu, which might yes. be the film that people know her most yeah. for. I yep. think that's what she's most famous for. As well as La Creole and Princess Tam Tam. Oh, and Princess Tam Tam. Yeah. That's the other one she's most yep. famous for yep. as well, yeah. So she is starting to get more broad appeal as well. She's famous not just on the stage anymore, but also on the screen. And she was hoping to take this fame home with her. So she went back to the States very briefly to appear in Zigfield's Follies. In the Follies, yes. Yeah. Because um, the Follies were huge at this period of time. Yeah, oh my God, enormous. Mm. Like, so... So famous. And she was hoping that this could help to, like, launch a Hollywood career. But America wasn't really ready for our dear Josephine Mm. Baker. And to be honest, they never were ever ready for Josephine (laughs) Baker. So she did go home and she got to spend a little bit of time with her family and she was able to support them financially as well, which was really um, important. Although she was in the Ziegfeld Follies, she wasn't really happy with the role that she had with them. And I think this says a lot about the amount of agency she she had with her own performances in Paris, particularly regarding those issues of some of those more problematic aspects of her performance that people might criticize her for. But she does say that she described her role in the US as nothing but a body to be exhibited in various stages of undress. But that's pretty much what the follies were though because the follies were basically just about presenting beautiful women in outrageous costumes and that was why you went along basically so she's become really famous in paris as the black venus who is famous for she did dancing nude a lot and Mm. dancing in various stages as well yep and singing naked but it's interesting that she thinks you know it's interesting in the difference obviously of the purpose of that performance and what she sees as her role in that performance between Paris and America. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's really interesting that she said that. Yeah, because I guess where is the agency in yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. It's taken away from her yep. and in the follies. And she basically just found America to still be really unwelcoming and racist. And that was the whole reason that she'd left in the first place. And she kind of just didn't really want to deal with mm. it anymore. So oh, so she went back to those non-racist Nazis. Yeah, <laughs> well, she went back to Paris. <laughs> okay. Um, but, Which but was soon to be occupied by the Nazis, it was. though. And we're going to talk about that, don't oh, you worry. Yeah. Um, but, but again, sorry, I'd just like to say again, this is like ding, 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 Leonora Carrington. It is, a, yeah, yeah, there's times. a lot of, yeah, there's yeah. definitely a bunch of crossovers. It's the same period of time in the same place. It's going to so happen. Overlap. Yeah. yeah. But despite being this like huge, enormous megastar who was worshipped in Paris, in America, she still, like, she had hotels refusing to. Um, have her she had restaurants refusing to serve her and she was criticized for dancing with white men so she was just kind of like this is fucked i don't like this i'm going back to paris so she did she went back to paris uh, where she met and married jean leon a rich jewish industrialist oh whatever happened to baker Oh, they divorced again, like, after a a a moment. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. that was, he never went to Paris with her. Okay. That was a long time ago. That was ages ago. Yeah. She has a a number of marriages. (laughs) Yeah, so she marries Jean and converted to Judaism herself, apparently, again, according to some reports. And they were really happy because he was a white man and she was accepted by his family. And they um, ended up renting this enormous abandoned 12th century chateau that she named Les Milandes. I think that's how you say it, Les Milandes, in the southeast of France. 
Okay, so Lemonland is basically her Neverland mm. to Michael Jackson. Those. This is. Um, <laughs> She has a, a lot of dreams that she tries to enact here and it's a really important place for her. So this is when she first moves there. She also became a French citizen at this point. So she's kind of put the US behind her. Yeah, she's renounced the US. Yeah. But like you said, there are a lot of rising tensions in Europe. So it's not a super amazing time to be black in Europe either. Hitler is going around calling black people half apes. And she's also now married to a Jew. So... While her new countrymen yes, may have loved her. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so while Paris loves her, like the invading forces at the door, not so much. Mm. Yeah, not a favourite with them. So we're at the outbreak of World War Two now. So shit's about to get different. Um, <laughs> so here she takes on quite a different role. And this is where we see Josephine uh, Baker, the yes. performer, become Josephine Baker, the espionage fucking spy yeah and she like received medals from she, like the french government in the end sure did she, did. For her, like espionage work she sure did this so is this is great. really cool because what she was able to do she was an enormous celebrity and so it's she, not like she's gonna slip under the radar unnoticed yeah so instead so she once again uses her celebrity to do an enormous amount of good so first things first she's she's performing for the troops so she goes to the uh, Maginot line which is the fortifications between France and Germany and performs for the soldiers that are stationed there she also was um, doing a lot of work at home she worked for the Red Cross and she was recruited by the French chief of counter-espionage, Jacques Abti, to serve as a secret informer or honourable correspondent. So, yeah, basically she's a spy for the resistance. So she can go back and forth across the borderline, That's right. basically. That's yeah, what, exactly what she did. So she continued performing, but she kind of disguised herself in this role because and she could, when, and she could what traffic messages exactly. and information yep. and all that so sort of stuff. she used to traffic messages in her in Dana her bra Dana cleavage, cleavage. Oh, she wrote in classic invisible ink on her sheet music oh, um and so she would stick notes she would stitch them to in, insides of her dresses and things like that but most importantly is that what she is still performing she's performing for the troops but she's also being invited to parties and important like dinners and you know basically has all of these very important officials coming to yeah. see her and we're probably getting drunk and a little bit like smitten exactly so you want to drop some secrets yep i might pick them up exactly she would go to galas and parties and rub shoulders with all these important diplomats and officials and flirt with them and perform for them and all the while she's fucking spying on them and taking everything that they say back home with her so she had a huge number of really important diplomatic contacts because she would just become friends with these people they admired her and loved her so she was like very close to the japanese ambassador to a number of italian diplomats she was actually accused of being really close to mussolini wow <laughs> too close to mussolini um she was also really good friends slash maybe lovers with the pasha of marrakesh them el glui glowy and a number of a powerful administrators in Spanish Morocco so and because she was so famed and adored like who's going to question Josephine Baker you know she relied on the fact that she was Josephine fucking Baker and nobody was going to stop her and search her and ask her questions and it fucking worked. worked it worked so here's a quote from her again. Being Josephine Baker had definite advantages. Seville, Barcelona, Madrid, wherever I went, I was swamped with invitations. I particularly liked attending diplomatic functions since the embassies and consulates swarmed with talkative people. Back at my hotel, I carefully recorded everything I had heard. My notes would have been highly compromising had they been discovered, but who would dare search Josephine Baker to the skin? So, yeah. <laughs> So while this is all going on, her and Jacques Abti, who's the the head of the mm. counter espionage unit, uh, they become lovers. <laughs> oh yeah, just, of course just, they just do because you may as well. Yeah. At this point, she was also doing a lot of humanitarian work as well. So while she was performing most nights of the week at the Paris Casino, she also starred in a weekly radio show for the troops, 
and she was working on her fourth movie. At the same time, she was working in a homeless shelter and she attended to many of the German refugees who were coming over the border. And also as she helped the German refugees, she also kept her ears rather out for information. And apparently as she crossed between the occupied and unoccupied zones, she even wore a fucking Star of David in defiance. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> like she was just... I think the thing with Josephine Baker and I, I read one critic describe her as just being utterly fearless. Like she just was never afraid that she was going to fail. So she just did everything. Yeah. And it, she was. And it worked. She was amazing. And because she had so many friends, the French government were able to warn her when the, when the Germans were coming to occupy Paris. And so she was able to move Jean and his family out to Le Meland before they came. Mm-hmm. She had divorced Jean by this point, but she's still protecting his family in her giant chateau. Her next assignment took her to uh, Morocco and North Africa. So in 1941, she went to Morocco and worked with the British as a liaison. Um, her basically, again, her job was to do what she was doing at home, attend parties and embassies, charming officials and gather whatever information she could. But of course, wherever Josephine Baker goes, so too does Scandal go. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so remember how I said that she was friends and maybe lovers with the Pasha of Marrakesh? Mm. So normally she'd go and stay with him. But he's in the middle of like really intense political discussions between the French and the Germans because Morocco is kind of like, oh, well, we're under occupation by the France, but maybe we actually want to be friends with the Germans. So he couldn't be seen to have an old, Anything to do with yeah, an old yeah. lover back in his nest. So instead, she went and stayed at the palace of his brother-in-law. Moulay good good thing there are so many palaces at your disposal. There's just so many. But this was a little bit... He wasn't very happy with her because she would basically kind of like wander around the house naked and she would go down to the kitchens and help out the staff. And, you know, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to help the people. You can't do that. She also got very attached to a few of the children and wanted to adopt them, which is... This is, again, interesting for later on. Yeah, this is definitely going to come up again later. And apparently one, one of the mothers of the children, when she learned of this, she like got her child and took it home. She was like, oh my God. Oh, she's going to steal my baby. But it is because she does really want to have children. She's at a point in her life. She wants to have children, particularly with Jacques Abti. But it didn't go so well. She had a lot of trouble conceiving and she also had a couple of miscarriages throughout her life. So when she's in Morocco, she had another miscarriage, but this time it was really, really serious. Um, She was taken to a gynecologist who some people around her have since called a little bit, well, this is my word, but I'm putting together a few of the words that they've used, a bit of a quack gynecologist Mm. in Casablanca. Um, And she ended up developing peritonitis, which is an inflammation of the stomach's cavity lining, as well as septicemia. And she needed a hysterectomy. So she was real, like she got really, really, really sick. She even had her last rites read to her. Wow. But she famously said to the priest, not yet, father. (laughs) And he went along his way. But again, didn't let this... She's in her, like, basically her deathbed, right? She is so sick. She's there for... for It took her 19 months to recover. Oh, my God. But all of these diplomats and leaders are coming to visit and pay their respects at her bedside so what does she do what does she do she continues her work yay and who's going to say no josephine i'm, I'm not, not gonna going, tell you I'm about that talk to you yeah. on your fucking deathbed so she's carrying on her yeah. espionage work from her sickbed yeah kept getting I mean, information what does it matter if you tell her she's gonna die anyway yeah, yeah yeah so she collected all of this really sensitive information while she was sick um which is great she ended up being able to get secure a bunch of spanish moroccan passports for jews so she smuggled eastern european jews to latin america by having the high commissioner say that they were moroccan jews not eastern european jews so she saved a lot of people by managing things she's pretty incredible she's pretty spectacular Um, but everyone thought she was so sick langston hughes wrote her an obituary because everyone thought that she died oh that's fine and in fact her sister then read this obituary (gasps) at home and took it to her mother like, oh, my God, mom, Josephine's <laughs> dead. She's dead. And her mom was like, I don't think so. <laughs> and so for some reason, somehow her mom knew that Just, Josephine yeah, wasn't dead. Wasn't, yeah, it wasn't true. <laughs> so she comes back eventually. From the dead. She comes, she comes back from the dead 
comes back to France. And yes, she was awarded the Medal of the Resistance. She was named a Chevalier of the Legion of Honor by the French government. She got a bunch of awards, basically. But she kept helping the poor, particularly, like she was really concerned basically about the effect that the war had on the poor. One Christmas, Jack came to try to find her and she was gone. And then um, he learned that she was at a butcher where he found her purchasing 200 kilos of veal for needy people, one ton of vegetables, and she also had one ton of coal. She'd actually stolen the coal from her own apartment building, telling the angry tenants that they were rich and that they could afford to buy more from the black market. Oh, wow. So she's kind of also the Robin Hood of... Yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah, and she told the recipients of all the stuff that it was the free French who had supplied it, but actually she had pawned a lot of her own jewellery, and including her cross of Lorraine in order wow. to pay for it. Wow. So yeah, she, she pawned a whole bunch of her stuff and she continued selling and pawning her stuff in order to pay for a tour that followed the French first army through all the liberated countries. For this tour, she hired Joe Bouillon, um, who was an openly gay conductor who she then married. Oh, so this okay, was her sure. fourth husband and she married him like her friends weren't really happy about this marriage because everybody knew that he was gay. And I think they were all like, why are you marrying Joe? But apparently she was in love with him, even though she knew that he had affairs with men and uh, apparently claimed to one friend, I need an orchestra and I'm going to cure him of his habits. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Which, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, Josephine. I know. It's a bit sad and naive. Josephine gets a little delusional the older she gets, doesn't she, though? Yeah, Maybe a little bit. I mean, I think that she's a woman who wants what she wants and she just does whatever she needs to do to get it. Mm. And for most of her life, she has actually... It's worked. It's worked. worked. Yeah. Yeah. In this case, they did marry and they were married for a while. Um, So she still got what she wanted. She still got what she wanted, but he also kept carrying on, I think, with men at the same time. But I think that they did genuinely still love each other. Mm. But it was definitely a different kind of a marriage. But again, it's Josephine Baker. Yeah, so why would you expect She's still carrying on with Jack, Jacques Apti anyway, and a whole bunch of other lovers. Apparently she'd have people coming to her house. Like she had like a strings of lovers who'd come to her house. I read one story of there was a guy who would come and park his motorbike and sneak in the back of her house. And then while he was banging Josephine, people would siphon his petrol because (laughs) of course it was like restricted because it was the war. But then he couldn't say anything. He couldn't. Like, I know you couldn't be like, oh, you, you like, stole my petrol while I was having because sex he was having Joseph. sex with Josephine Baker. Like, oh, I guess I'll just take that lots of petrol on the gym. Yeah, yeah. So they're all. It's again. It's Paris. They're just having a good time. Jazz age. Making the most out of what you can. Yeah. At this time, she's also starting to think that she wants to turn Le Milland into an amusement park. And I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to that yeah. as well. So this is the seeds being planted. She did have a big party there for an opening night at Le Miland, where where apparently she had like two thousand guests um, at this big party. Basically, though, what she really wanted was she wanted to return to the U.S. and she really wanted to introduce Joe to the American stage. She was warned by friends that America was not ready for Josephine Baker mm. and Joe, a black woman. And, and her an openly gay husband. white homosexual husband. Yeah. In 1951, turns out that, yeah, America wasn't ready mm. for them. Uh, she was invited to... Okay, so it began with she was invited to perform at a club in Miami, but she refused to perform for a segregated audiences. And at this time, blacks weren't allowed into this particular Miami club. Mm. Uh, she was having none of this, though, and she forced the issue, and she did perform to a mixed audience there, which was obviously something she was was so normal and used to in France, but was not very not normal the dumb in, thing, in yeah. the US. In Atlanta, she had to cancel her appearance because she couldn't get a hotel reservation. And in New York, there was this like really famous thing. She was at the Stork Club and she was very famously refused service. And Grace Kelly happened to be staying at the hotel. She took Josephine's arm and they stormed out together, vowing never to return. Oh, Grace. Yeah. yeah, they became really good friends. Yeah. 
Grace, Grace comes to her rescue again later on. So Josephine Baker starts to become somewhat involved in the civil rights yeah. movement, doesn't she, yeah. at this point, in, yeah. in the US? This is exactly it. So basically, after this incident, she made charges of racism against the owner of the club. And this escalated into a feud that would kind of cause a lot of trouble for her later on because, yes, her performances are becoming a lot more political, both musically and also because she would spend a lot of time discussing civil rights issues with her audiences. She campaigned on behalf of um, a black man named Willie McGee, who was on death row for raping a white woman. And the, the reason that she was campaigning for him, obviously not because he was a rapist, but because he was on death row and no white man had ever received the death penalty for rape in the South, but 51 black men had. Yeah, right. And so she was campaigning for the institutionalized yeah, yeah. racism that and the oh it comes into all of these issues that are still ongoing regarding police brutality and the, the problems with the court systems and the justice system and the prison system and all of those problems. Mm-hmm. This is what she's talking about to her audiences in America. But she also tries her own kind of experiment in yeah. race, doesn't she? Yeah. Are we ready to talk about yeah, that? Yeah, you go. Yeah, you tell it. So as you talked about before, so she had desperately wanted children and she tried so many times and had no luck. So she sort of starts adopting children. Yeah. And she has this kind of desire to have basically mm. one of every race it's the Rainbow tri- Tribe. She, she called it the she Rainbow ca- Tribe. called it the Rainbow Tribe. Mm. And she wanted to have one child representative of every race on the planet, which is highly problematic because that also means that she had to consider what that even meant. It's, like, how do you even define ethnicity? How do you define all these sorts of things? And then how do you find one yeah. of each of those? It's very – this is another one of those things where it's like it's a really idyllic project and it comes absolutely from a place of incredible goodwill and she was so generous and just wanted everybody to love each other she really was absolutely committed to the ending of racial discrimination but she went about it in an, a very problematic way and not even just the things that you said in terms of how do you even define yeah. race she redefined race so basically she adopted a child from a french orphanage because she was unable to adopt a child from Israel. And so she renamed this child Moes. I, I think that might be the French French for Moses. Moses, yeah. And had him converted to Judaism and hired a Hebrew tutor for him. She also went to Algeria. Now, she saved two sole surviving children of a massacre. Fucking wonderful. But then she renamed the girl Marianne and made her Catholic and renamed the boy Brahim and made him Muslim. So she's has really amazing and excellent intentions. But she's treating human beings like symbols. Yeah. After she had returned back to Paris, and I'll come back to her time in the US, but once she returned back to Paris, there was a lot of people who kind of criticized Le Milland, which is mm. her castle where she lived with all the kids. And as, didn't, didn't she sort of like charge admission for people to come and watch the children well, playing together? This is the thing. A lot of people accused her of exploiting the children and treating it like a zoo. But other people say that she was really, really loving and that her children were incredibly well educated and very pampered and had everything they could ever want. So I don't know. It's a difficult... It's a murky, murky territory yeah, here. Yeah, because she, she adopted 12 children in total and i think moses died didn't he uh i'm not so sure was it 13 and then moses died she also had an unofficially adopted child called jean claude and he was a kid that she had met at a hotel in berlin right. who his father had recently left and she was just like oh well from now on you have two mothers instead and she just became a big influence in his life rather than becoming his ad- Official adopted, official adopted mother, mother but yeah. he referred to her as his mother for the rest of his life. Is that what you mean? Maybe. Yeah, I'm not sure. You're you're the expert, yeah. here, so you have. To <laughs> so tell she me. does. Yeah, some accounts say she had 13 children because right. they count Jean Claude along with them. Right. But he was not officially adopted by. But her. either way, it's a bit of a strange scenario. Yeah, it is. 
it is a bit of a strange scenario. But again, I think that it, it comes absolutely from her really well-intentioned desire to see a better world. And she did a lot of campaigning for civil rights. She went and it got her into a lot of trouble. So she was she was getting a reputation for being a real troublemaker. And when she was in the US, she would get threats from the Ku Klux Klan. And she, well, she actually also, she founded the World League to End Racism and Anti-Semitism and spoke out against racism in the US. But she, when she founded this and when she was speaking out about racism in the US and she did a lot of criticizing of the US, she did this when she was in South America. And to the American government, she was seen as kind of being a bit of a traitor. And so remember this guy from the store club owner who she sued, Walter Winchell? He sent the FBI letters and gossip, which further denounced her. And she had links made with um, being a communist. and, And she ended up being put on the FBI's watch list. Wow. They wrote reports about her, one of which was 359 pages long, about her apparent associations with communist groups her defense of Willie McGee and her criticism of racial discrimination in the US. And after the American embassy in Buenos Aires recorded her saying this, I am calling for unity of all the colored people of the world to regain their dignity and their self-confidence. I'm calling on our white brothers to join us in providing to those who believe that the colored race is inferior, that all men are equal and that there is one race, the human race. So the American embassy recorded her saying that, which I think that that sounds like it's a fairly logical statement to make. Very great speech. Yeah. For civil rights and for her work as an activist for attempting to end racial discrimination in her homeland, she was rewarded by the U S by having her citizenship revoked. She was banned from the country for 10 years. But hang on. She had become a French citizen. She had. And then she'd gone back to becoming an American citizen. She must have had dual citizenship. Right. Okay. And they revoked her US citizenship. So for 10 years. For 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Just because she wanted everybody to get along. Exactly. Yeah. She was very vocal in her criticism, but of course she was. She had experienced the worst of American racism. And not that you should have to be a superstar in order to not have racist treatment, but even as Josephine Baker, she still was refused service everywhere she still experienced the effects of segregation and she really hated it Mm. she really hated what happened in her country because because what more could she do yeah to be accepted like what more could you want from me to prove my worth as a human being i've done everything that i could possibly do to show you how fabulous and how wonderful i am and yet still yeah that i am a civilized human being just like everybody else and i am just as capable as everybody and i have proved that time and time again and it's still not enough still not enough so she didn't go back to the u.s for about 10 years she returned in 1963 and the reason for that was to join the civil rights march in washington alongside martin luther king jr So the FBI failed to establish any concrete connections between Josephine and communists, though she was still seen as being dangerous for having, air quotes, pro-Negro interests, Mm. which were seen as being in line with communist interests. And was she, she was offered like a position after Martin Luther King was assassinated. She was like offered to sort of step up and take on a role, but she refused used it because she was basically scared of the ramifications exactly yeah and she said that she just she didn't want her children to lose their mother so she didn't take it on but it was actually martin luther king jr's widow who offered her that position i think wow Mm. yeah so she did a lot she was the only female speaker at the march on washington and she wore her free french uniform as she spoke in front of all of those people and yeah, that still was never really enough for the American public to mm. like her. <laughs> so what happened to her in the end? Um, she went back to France 
And she did lose Lemiland, her big castle, because she was unable to pay her creditors. However, once again, her good friend, Princess Grace, came to her rescue and rented her a villa for herself and her children. And she had a final tour in 1975. Well, she planned a final tour for 1975. It was supposed to be a compilation of all of her shows and films, the best of Josephine Baker. And the opening night was attended by Princess Grace, of course, as well as like Sophia Loren, Mick Jagger. It was huge, just so like the old days. She, how old is she now? She's like 70. 70. Yeah, yeah, wow. 70. So she did her big show. Apparently it was just incredible. They had this massive party afterwards, just like the old days, staying up, partying all night. But the next day she could not be roused. Mm. She suffered a stroke and she died in uh, La Sapertiere Hospital on April 12, 1975. Aww. So she went out with a bang. Yeah, she sure did. She went out as Josephine fucking Baker. Yeah. Like big party nothing's gonna bring her down yeah you know yeah and i think that's i mean it's terrible that she suffered a stroke and died but just but what a life what an amazing way to go out after this big comeback show that she was once again just adored at that's pretty cool and as well she also had a funeral with full military honors and so she's the only american woman to have had one in france there was a 21 volley salute wow huge procession so yeah that was amazing win i know what an amazing life she's pretty incredible so incredible wow i just think that she's fascinating and i love the fact that she just kept reinventing herself yeah over and over well she was always Josephine Baker at the center mm. of it. Yeah. Whether the it was, reinventions were never false. They were never personas. It was, it, it was just another version. It was just another yeah, side to her. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, working for the resistance, she was working for the resistance as Josephine yeah. Baker. And the civil rights, that all came back to her childhood where she had experienced that incredibly difficult racist life that she was born into that she managed to escape from and that she wanted to go back and help it so that no one else had to experience that again and it what a what a like follow your dreams story absolutely follow your dreams everyone follow your dreams she did it wow she's amazing i think that she's like reading some of the stories of hers and this was a brief overview there are so a lot more many just fascinating little anecdotes that you can find about her and she just lived life to the fullest she did whatever she wanted and that's amazing she just didn't let anything stop her but sadly we only have time to scratch the surface of these people that's all we can do (laughs) all we can do is hopefully introduce you to some aspects of people that you may never have heard of or different aspects of people that you have heard of yeah and then please go out and find find more there's a million biographies of her some, um, of, some of them autobiographies that's right. that may all be slightly different, yeah, obviously. Right. Right. And again, this is, yeah, this is the magic of Josephine Baker. She's just a fucking amazing enigma. There's I love her. There's so much, to, wow, She's so so much great. to discover. So go and watch Zuzu and look up the Banana Skirt Dance on YouTube and read some of her biographies. She's pretty great. Wow, excellent! Oh well, she was terrific. I'm so pleased that we so spoke about her today. So much fun as well. Yay! Yeah. All right. Is there any, any any other last comments on Josephine before we wrap up for today's episode? Uh, I just want to say that I felt so good reading about her. Like I just <laughs> constantly was laughing and having these moments of joy reading about her life. I just I just think she's incredible. She is wonderful. Yeah. Hooray! So that's the end of Josephine Baker. Great. Well. For us. And that brings us uh, to the end of this fortnight's episode yeah. as well. And we've got a little bit of news about next week's. Well, oh, it's actually yeah. not next week. No. And that's the whole thing. Because we- Alicia is traveling off to New York. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I'll be in New York for a couple of weeks. So we're going to have a brief hiatus. Very brief hiatus. For retooling. Very brief. And then we'll be back. So we'll be back. We'll early, back in May, early May. Back yep. in early May. And we'll be talking about someone. When we come back, we'll be talking about somebody much closer to home for us. Yeah. We'll be here in the Antipodes <laughs> and 
we'll be talking about someone quite deviant in very 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 deviant a deviant australian yeah um properly deviant like not just cult like not just sort of subversive or but transgressive in many ways yeah yeah so that's exciting i'm looking forward to this one it should be very interesting and it'll be a little dark as well i think we might get a little stuff with that one well we've got other news as well yep so the other thing is always that lauren and i um very uh, perhaps naively um (laughs) I made some offers about merchandise. That's right. Um, earlier on in a, f- a few earlier episodes about how um, willing we were to put together some handmade merchandise <laughs> and how willing we were to uh, mail that out into the world. And look, we're still more than willing to uh, have merchandise sent out into the world. However, um, we have had a bit of a response. We, which ha- is, we have. Which, which is, is great, great. Which is awesome. But that's also made us realise that... Um, we can't afford to send you shit. No, we can't. <laughs> and we may have also bitten off more than we can chew with that offer. So um, with, you know, a little bit of regret, we're just backpedalling on that a little bit. Not completely, but just not a completely, little bit. Because we are actually in the process of making some merchandise. That's right. We do have some actual legit Deviant Women merchandise it's going to happen underway it's going to happen it's, it's going to be real and legit and way more legit than some yeah and it will be a lot better exactly it'll be so much better than the <laughs> shit i would have made myself so we do we will have some proper really nice merchandise yep. coming up for you in the near future and we'll let you know more details about yep. that and hopefully we'll have a few more details about that by early May, maybe by our next yep. episode, we'll see. Yeah, let's hope so. And um, also, we'll have to have a think about uh, postage. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so fucking expensive to it's send things expensive. in the world. Yeah. Oh my god! And we don't make any money. No, us. we don't really make any money at all. So unfortunately, um, <laughs> you know, as much as we'd love to do that out of the goodness of our hearts, we don't have the funds <laughs> to do that. So, um, yeah, we'll let you know more about uh, that as it unfolds. Yeah. And uh, otherwise, we'll be back again in about three weeks' time with some new Deviant Women, and I think that's about it. And we We're look forward done. to seeing you done again. So. Thank you to Brendan, and thank you to India. And thank you to Lauren. Thanks, oh, Lauren. Thank you, Alicia. No, thank you. Thank you. It's a beautiful thing. And <laughs> we'll see you all next time. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye.